We've been working through this story of Abraham, a man from antiquity, really the founder of the Jewish faith, the founder, therefore, of what became the Christian faith, what is now the Christian faith, as Jesus becomes the fulfillment of everything that's promised in the Old Testament. We've been working through it bit by bit. We've got this week and next week, two more weeks, uh, looking at the life of this man. And um, just to kind of get a a quick pen picture, really, or rather a quick word picture of uh, what we've just read, we've got to this point in the life of Abraham where he's he's seen a massive, if you were able to be here last, last week, a massive intervention by God in this world. Uh, it's so massive that it's gone down in our, almost in our phraseology and the words that we use uh, as a kind of, um, a, if you like, a, a shorthand for the intervention of God. It's Sodom and Gomorrah. The event where God, by dramatic intervention, calls to account the lives of those who live in Sodom and Gomorrah and who are living in direct opposition to God. What a dramatic incident we see at that particular point in time. And now we carry on from that event, and it's as though we are, although that has happened, even though it was so massive, so dramatic, the narrator is saying to us, effectively, I now want to draw you back, I want to get you back, that what we are following is the life of this man called Abraham. And the intervention of God in his life. It's so massive what has happened in the previous chapter. It's almost so big you think, well, we'll stick with that for a while. But the narrator doesn't do that. He draws our attention now and takes us back to a man wandering in the desert. He's been told by God that this land has been given to him. He's wandering around the area that he has been, that has been appointed to him by God, just wandering around the desert. We saw right at the very beginning, he's almost making a statement that he believes that God has given him this land by stepping around the various boundaries of it. By saying, I believe that you have given us this land. I will travel around it. I will declare by my actions, I believe in your gift. Now we see in uh, verse 1 of chapter 20, now Abraham moved on from there near to the place of Sodom and Gomorrah. He moved on into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gera. And there Abraham said of his wife, Sarah, she is my sister. If you've been around for the past few weeks, that's just a remarkable little phrase there. Um, there, are a few, there are a few books or movies that create a new meaning for a word, or perhaps for some of us, create a meaning for a word that we didn't even know existed. In Pennsylvania, there is a, an annual tradition, I think it's around about the second, beginning of February sometime, around about that, that point. It's called Groundhog Day. Uh, and Groundhog Day is, uh, the, the story goes that on Groundhog Day, a groundhog, which is a kind of a big sort of rodent-type creature in America, kind of comes out, up out of the ground, so the story goes. If the groundhog sees its shadow, 
Um, I've, I've probably got this wrong. Either sees its shadow or doesn't see its shadow. It sees its shadow. It knows the sun is out. It knows it's spring and it carries on. It's called Groundhog Day. 2nd of February It's the beginning of spring. However, mo- not many of you, I would guess, knew what Groundhog Day was according to that. Some of you will know that Groundhog Day is a film, 1993, featuring uh, Bill Murray. Uh, the, the story goes like this for Bill Murray. He, he goes along, he's a, he's a frustrated, arrogant um, reporter on TV, and he's asked to go and report on Groundhog Day. And he thinks it's just so below him. I don't want to go and report on something like that. He's taken out to go and report on Groundhog Day. Uh, And he ends up in in a time loop. Uh, And he ends up, every morning he gets up, and he goes through exactly the same routine that went through the following day. And he goes, gets up the following morning, and he goes through the same, uh, presenting the... And he's the only one that knows that he's in this loop. He's the only one that feels as though he's going round and round and round and round Groundhog Day. And every morning he's getting up to present once again at this feature on Groundhog Day. So he starts to take advantage of it. He lives a quacky, crazy life. And then he starts to really kind of look inwardly, becomes incredibly depressed, starts to look deeper and deeper, and finally gets out of this loop, Groundhog Day. This is Abraham's Groundhog Day. It's like he's going back around the loop. I say that because this is exactly what he said, if you've been following the story, way back when, right at the beginning of the story, when he goes into Egypt, and his decision at that point in time is that he's going to tell the Pharaoh or tell everybody around this wife Sarah, or Sarai as she was at that point, is not my wife, it's my sister, and that way I'll be protected. Let's see what he says here. She is my sister. Verse 2, that's what we're going to say as we come across this next character, Abimelech, king of Gerah, because he's equally fearful. He's equally concerned and scared that precisely what he was scared about beforehand, they're going to kill me, they're going to take you. This is Abraham's Groundhog Day. He is going back around the loop, the same thing again that he has already been doing. As it turns out, the story goes, as it unfolds, Abimelech receives a message from God warning him of the situation that he has put himself in, because exactly the same has happened in, G- in Egypt it does happen with Abimelech. Exactly the same thing. He takes Sarah, and he's about to take her as his wife. Exactly what Abraham suspected might happen, but because he said he, she's his sister, he doesn't end up being killed. Takes her up to be his wife, And then God speaks to him and says, do you realize what's happened? You've taken another man's wife. And Abimelech says, it it wasn't me. Don't forgive me uh, of my guilt because I'm innocent, really. I didn't do it on purpose. I didn't mean to do it. I didn't realize. I didn't know. Uh, And as a result, he pours blessing on Abraham and Sarah And they leave with a remarkable amount of privileged blessing. 
gifts and and money. Later on in chapter 21, we're not going to cover it as a reading, later on, Abimelech actually comes back and makes a treaty with Abraham. It's a remarkable story. God intervening. You say, well, that's uh, an interesting little narrative. This is Abraham going back round again. He's, he's already tried to protect himself once. He says the same thing again. What do we do with it? How can we understand? I think that this gives us, this little narrative gives us the opportunity this afternoon to step back and to just take some time and look at the whole story and look at some remarkable things because this in a way gives us the opportunity to see that we are stepping into the whole of this story and we are looking, if you like, at a gallery of the portraits of how God intervenes or doesn't intervene with different people. In a sense, we can, see, we can do that precisely because this story is so like one of the stories that has gone before. So, I'm going to suggest that there are, there's a portrait of three kings and two contrasts. Three kings and two contrasts. There's also a portrait of two immigrants. We're going to look at those. The first contrast that we see is between Abimelech, oh, the contrast between Abimelech and Pharaoh in relation to Abraham. Look at what it says. I'm going to read a few verses for you. Earlier on, we say this. We see this in chapter 12. Abraham says this, this is my wife. Then they will kill me, because you, uh, but they will let you live, say you are my sister. Verse 12, verse 17. What happens? What happens when Pharaoh takes Sarah's wife, Sarah, from Abraham? The Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abraham's wife, Sarai. So here's this king, not dissimilar in one sense, although a much greater empire. Here's this king, Pharaoh, who takes Sarah in exactly the same way, and God inflicts diseases on him and his family. Come to this section, what do we see? We see that God came to Abimelech, verse 3, in a dream one night and said to him, you are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Look at that. Isn't that interesting? Here we've got one king, Pharaoh, who God doesn't intervene with, God doesn't speak to, God inflicts him with diseases. Here's another king who does exactly the same thing, takes Sarah to be his wife, and God comes to him and speaks to him and says, you're as good as dead. What's he saying? He's saying, you are guilty. You don't know it, but you're guilty. You're as good as dead. There is no 
inflicting of diseases on Abimelech. Although later on we find out that at this particular point in time, he stopped the whole of his family, all of the women in the whole of his wider family from having children. We know that, but there is no inflicting of diseases upon them. And there is the speaking of God into the situation. Isn't that remarkable? What a contrast. God deals with one in one way and He deals with another in another way. There's one contrast between two kings. The third contrast I want to make is between Abimelech, and this is the big story, gives us an opportunity to look at what's been going on. The other contrast is between Abimelech and the king of Sodom. Now, if we take ourselves back some time to an earlier part in the story, what we see is that um, Abraham goes along to Egypt. They leave with masses of goods, and as they leave, there is just too many of them to be sustained by the land. He's got with him his orphaned nephew, Lot, Uh, And he turns around to Lot and he says, you go in whichever direction you choose. I will go in the opposite direction. We will make space for each other. It's a remarkably gracious decision that Abraham offers to his nephew Lot. Lot chooses the plains of the Jordan and heads towards Sodom. A bit later on, he is taken captive along with all of the possessions of Sodom by a a consortium of kings. He's taken captive. Abraham goes and rescues him. Travels out and he he rescues Lot, but alongside rescuing Lot and all of the provisions, he comes back and he gives all of the provisions and everything that he recovers of the king of Sodom's property back to the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom said to Abraham, on giving everything back, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. Remarkable response. He has lost everything. In the ancient world, why does he say give me the people? Uh, People are the means of creating wealth in the ancient world. Not a lot different to today, really, is it? In one way or another, many of us are just wealth creators for somebody else. In the ancient world, the king of Sodom said, well, if you give me more people, I can rebuild. You just keep keep the goods, you know, do whatever. There is a, a lack of appreciation. There is a lack of value. There is a lack of recognition for a good thing that Abraham did by the king of Sodom. The king of Sodom receives his people back and the goods because Abraham actually refuses to take the goods. He receives everything back and that's the end of it. There is no recognition of what Abraham has done. There is no recognition of the fact that the king of Sodom never steps back and he says, hang on a sec. This man goes out, relatively small company of men with him and recovers everything. How does he do that? How has he been able to do that? He does not look behind and see and recognize the hand of God in it. He just takes his goods back. What happens with King Abimelech? 
on realizing the injustice of Abraham by lying to him, by seeing that he has been deceived. Look at what we see in verse 14 and 15. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, my land is before you. Live wherever you like. Isn't that a massive contrast? One receives massive blessing and just disregards the blessing, ignores it. The other receives massive blessing, uh, massive pressure. He's challenged by what he receives. He sees the injustice of what Abraham did, and he gives blessing to Abraham. Later on in chapter 21, we read this, that he makes uh, a treaty with Abraham. Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his forces, said to Abraham, why did he do it? Why did he do what he did? He says this, God is with you. (laughs) God is with you in everything you do. Now swear to me here before God that you will not deal falsely with me or my children or my descendants. Verse 20, chapter 21. What a massive contrast. One says, thanks very much. The other says, God's been working behind you. God's spoken. I think that there is a time bomb behind all of that. And the time bomb is this, that we have to light the touch paper on and see how it explodes in our thinking. The time bomb is this. We see in one situation... God's gracious intervention. And we don't see God's gracious intervention in another. We see God working in one, God dealing in one, God intervening so that Abimelech will not sin. And we don't see God intervening in the life of Pharaoh. We see God intervening in Abimelech's life so that he will see, even though he has been uh, disserved by Abraham, we see him uh, turning out blessing and coming into relationship with Abraham when we see the king of Sodom, he never takes a moment and God never deals with him, never speaks to him when when he has the opportunity to see God's hand, God intervening in the life of one and God not intervening in the life of the other. Amazing contrast. Second portrait is two immigrants. One is Lot and the other is Abraham. They don't live in this land. They've both traveled into this land. They've moved into the land that God had told them to move into. They, They weren't raised there. They weren't born there. In fact, if we see last week, Lot is even described as this stranger in this city. Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan set out east. We read in verse 13, they parted company and Lot lived according to his own decisions, according to his own will, according to that which he saw to be fit in his own eyes. And he ends up taken captive and God intervenes to rescue him. 
And he doesn't come back and he doesn't live in the land that God has appointed him to live. Rather, he lives, now, rather than living in Sodom, he, he lives outside of it. Oh, sorry, rather than living outside of it, he now lives inside of Sodom. So, before he was close, now he lives in, within it. And God is coming down to destroy the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. What does God do? He sends a messenger. And it gets to this point where Lot hesitates as to whether he should respond and be saved. When he hesitates, the man grabbed him by the hand and the hand of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city for God was merciful with them. There's God intervening in the life of Lot, intervening, 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 and yet God doesn't respond, Lot doesn't respond in an appropriate way, again and again and again. He doesn't make those changes in life. And yet we see later on in the New Testament that he is described as a righteous man. What do we see with Abraham? We see a man who very much the idea of this Groundhog Day is a pattern of his life. We see a man who takes his sla- his, the slave girl of his wife, the servant girl, to have a baby with because he doesn't believe that God will deliver. We see a man who repeatedly again and again and again describes his wife as his sister because he doesn't trust that God will keep and protect as he said he will. We see a man who does not again and again live. He lives that kind of, yet he lives the big statements of life according to God's will. He lives in the land that God has placed him. But on a day-to-day basis, maybe he's not living quite as he ought to live. You know, he carries on with this, she's my sister idea. I think that that, really is a challenge to us. I think, I think, I look at my life, uh, I look at our lives together, and I think very often, you know, we can fall into exactly that trap. We might make the big statements, but when it comes down to the day-to-day issues of trust on a day-to-day basis, in the little things, in moving into this situation, in moving into that situation, We carry on holding on to the things that we've decided it should be. We carry on holding on to the way we think we should live. We carry on living, okay, in the big things I might say, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, but in my day-to-day living, I carry on behaving like Abraham. I carry on saying she's my sister. Why? Figuratively speaking, she's my sister. We do the little things according to our own, our own skills, clever ideas, lack of faith. Why? Because it reveals to us again and again that we don't actually live a life of faith as we should do it. We don't live in a detail in that, that kind of day-to-day way that we should. There's another time bomb. If we don't live according to the way that we should, what hope is there?
if we carry on living this repeated process of failing to take those steps that we know that we ought to, how can we hope that God might hold on to us? We see in the life of Abraham, spread out through the whole of the story, this simple truth. We are dependent not on what we have done, but the ongoing gracious intervention of God in our lives. Every single day. That's what we are dependent on. How is it that Abraham, even though he continues to go through this process of not living in the way that he ought to, why is it that he is still there? Because it is God who is continuing to intervene. It's God who's not letting him go. It's God who's breaking into his life again and again and again. It's God who's reshaping situations. It's God who's protecting Sarah in this occasion again and keeping her from being taken by Abimelech. It's God who's intervening. It's God who's pursuing him. It's God who's keeping hold of him. It's grace. What is grace? It's receiving from God what we don't deserve. That's what it is. We don't deserve it. If Abraham had lived in a way which begins to understand these lessons and begins to apply them absolutely every... He he then suddenly is in a situation where he can say, right now, God, I am in a position where I am delivering. You have to give me. You have to give me. You know, I've learned it now. And I'm, I'm living this exemplary life. In every single way, I'm living according to your promise. I'm living according to the covenant demands that you've made on me. I'm living according to the way that you've said I ought to live. And then suddenly, as soon as he reaches that point, he can turn around to God and he can say, now you have to give me. And the reality is that this story says Abraham doesn't live like that. He carries on living in little ways. Yes, he's making progress. Oh, definitely he's making progress. But he's carrying on, messing up. That's the story of Abraham. I think that is great news. That is great news. Because I live those groundhog days, don't you? Don't you find yourself in the situation? I wonder whether Abraham just, I wonder what it felt like when Abimelech called him before him. He said, why did you do this to me? Why was it that you lied to me and put me in the position of potential massive offense to God. Why did you do it? I wonder whether Abraham went back from that meeting that night and as the sun went down and he was lying looking up at the roof of his tent, I wonder what went through his mind. Again, why have I done it again? Why have once again have I done what I... I've learned this, haven't I? 
I've been here before. I've failed in this way before. I've already seen God intervene in this situation in, in Egypt. I know that God will intervene. Why, why have I done it again? Does that feel close to home? I think if we're believers in Jesus Christ, living day to day as Christians, I think for, for pretty, pretty much all of us, that should feel close to home because we are in that situation. Why have I done it again? Why have I done it again? Why have I not learned? Maybe by grace, little by little, we do learn. But my experience is that I don't learn first time, do you? Very rarely. Again and again and again, I go round and round the same mess. What does that say to you and to me? It says, to, it says to us this. Firstly, it says, there is nothing that you or I can do that means that we are living a life which says to God, I am living so well, you've got to deliver all of your promises. Because I know that I am going to reach a point in the next period of weeks, days, weeks, months, or years where I know I will find myself looking up at the ceiling at night realizing, why have I done it again? There is nothing that I can do. I am and you are fully and absolutely and completely dependent upon God's grace day to day to hold on to you. You are dependent on that. You cannot survive a day unless God keeps hold of you. That's the message of the story of Abraham. You need to know that if you believe for a moment that it is dependent upon how well you deliver, you've had it. When we realize day to day, I am dependent on that God, we're in a great situation. There's a little story in the New Testament. It revolves around the life of Jesus. Jesus came and he spoke principally to the Jewish community. That's who he spoke to. That's who he came to minister to. It was after he had come into this world. It was after that that the floodgates opened for the whole of the world to know him. But there's this little story where a Greek woman comes to him and she pleads. She begs that Jesus would heal her daughter. You can re find it later if you want to read it. Mark chapter 7. You read this story. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First let the children eat all they want, Jesus said, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. <laughs> what does that mean? Jesus was using dramatically offensive language at that point in time. She's a Greek and Jesus is using terminology of the day by Jewish people Greeks or the Gentiles, anybody who wasn't a Jew, was described by Jew Jews as dogs. 
That's how, if you were a Jew in first century, you would have described anybody who wasn't a Jew, they're a dog. And Jesus is saying, I've come to feed the Jews. I've not come to feed dogs. So why are you coming to me for your daughter to be healed? Listen to how the woman responded. She said this, Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. (laughs) I think that's brilliant, isn't it? She's saying what? You are just so offensive to talk to me like that. How horrible for you to turn away like that. No, that's not how she's responding. She's saying, I know. (laughs) But even a crumb is good enough if it comes from you. That's what she's saying. What is it that she's saying? I am totally dependent on you. I can't go anywhere else. There is nobody else who can intervene for my daughter except for you. I am utterly dependent on you. I know that you've come principally for these Jews, and I'm not one of those, but I'm dependent on you. What is she declaring? Absolute commitment that Jesus is the only answer. And she's saying, I can't go anywhere else. Even the dogs under the table eat the crumbs, Lord. And Jesus said, go away because your daughter is healed. For such a reply, because it was a smart reply, no, because it opened up her heart. She knew, I am totally dependent on you. I can't go anywhere else. There is no hope except for you. That is exactly where we need to be. Every single day, I have no hope. I've used this before. I've mentioned this before. Some of you I know um, enjoy listening or reading to John Piper. Reading John Piper. Great great thinker, pastor of a church over in America, intellectually a genius, theologically massive, pastorally amazing. Every perspective of looking at a believer in Jesus Christ, you would say, John Piper, what a model. He would be able to say, as Paul said, come and live like me. And we would be able to say, there's a great example, go and live like that. He says this, every morning I get up and I plead with God, keep hold of me today. Why? Because he understands that for all of his experience, for all of his reading, for everything that he is, it is nothing if God doesn't keep a hold of him, if Jesus doesn't keep a hold of him by the power of the Holy Spirit, today he is finished. 
I've had friends, too many friends, I guess, down the years who are not where they once were, who are not believing in Jesus in the way that they seem to once be believing in Jesus. It's a tragedy. It's heartbreaking. What does it do? What should it do in our minds and in our thinking? If we think how terrible they are, how awful they are, we are one step away of being in exactly the same place. If we step back and say, I can be there. And I am absolutely dependent on you keeping hold of me today. We are in a better place. That's if we're believers in Jesus. There's one other perspective. Pharaoh wasn't, and Abimelech wasn't. And they both did exactly the same thing. And God intervened with one, and God didn't intervene with the other. But the one who he did intervene with, he also said, You're guilty. You're guilty. What is the response of Abimelech? It's not my fault, it's Abraham. <laughs> no. He says, I am, effectively. By the way he lives, he says, I am guilty. He says, yes, you're right. I'm, I'm potentially guilty in your sight. And I will respond by blessing the one who you have marked out as a blessing. In other words, I will respond to you through him. You might say, well, if I am absolutely dependent for hope in God by God dealing and speaking and engaging with me, you might say, well, what if he doesn't? Jesus had another word with regards to that. He said, I will never turn anyone away anybody away who comes to me. I will never turn anyone away who comes to me. And maybe part of this afternoon you're beginning to think, if God works like that, if it demands for God to intervene in my life, I desperately need for God to intervene in my life. Will He? Will He intervene in my life? Will He intervene? Jesus says, yes, you come to me and I promise you I will intervene. We can't get our heads around that other than the fact that you're here this afternoon and maybe that is exactly part of God intervening. Exactly part of God intervening. Because you see, Pharaoh didn't see God's hand behind what was going on and Abimelech did. And the king of Sodom didn't see God's hand behind what was going on and Abimelech did. And maybe what you are seeing and what you've reached the point in your life of seeing is the fact that I am here is not me making these decisions, but it's God intervening in my life. It's God's hand behind intervening. He will not turn you away. And you are utterly dependent on Him. I want to encourage you to trust in that Jesus who said, I will not turn you away. 
And those of us who believe in Jesus day by day, and we know that it's another Groundhog Day for us. We're going back through the same stuff again and again and again. Your salvation is not dependent upon you cracking this issue and beating it. Your salvation is dependent upon you being held on to by God. So what is the response on the Groundhog Day? God, hold on to me. God, deliver me from this. God, help me because I cannot beat it. Please hold on to me because I need you. I hope what we've been able to do this afternoon is just step back and see the intervention of God in so many different ways that reminds us we need him to intervene in our lives.